Hare Krishna. And good morning to everyone listening in. Pleased to have everybody with us this morning. Rupanuga Das here with you. We're going to be giving a little discourse on the Srimad Bhagavatam. For those of you who would like to read along, it's Canto 1, Chapter 9, Text Number 28. I'm pleased to know that there are some of you who are listening in right now live and that there will be others later on who are listening in to the archived audio uh, of radhakalachanji.org. So I thank you for being with us this morning. Radha Kalachanji are also here with us. And we will now invoke the blessings of that Supreme Lord and His Supreme Consort. Jayaratamadhava Kunjabihari Gopi Janavallava Girivaradhari Jaya Jashuranandana Brajajadaranjana Jashuranandana Brajajana Ranjana Yamuna Dira Vanachari Yamuna Dira Vanachari Jai Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Jai Gaur Premananda Hari Hari Bo Jai Om Vishnupad Padmahamsa Paribhajaka Charja Hasto Tarasata Sri Srimadis Divine Loving Grace Abhai Charanadavinda Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharashi La Prabhupada Ki Jai Om Vishnupad Padmahamsa Paribhajaka Charja Hasto Tarasata Sri Srimadis Divine Loving Grace Sri La Bhaktivedanta Sarasvati Goswami Maharashi La Prabhupada Ki Ananta Koti Vaishnavrinda Ki Iskan BBT Founder Charja Shil Prabhupada Ki Iskan Guru Parampara Ki Sri Rupa Sri Sanatan Bhatta Raghunath Sri Jeeva Gopal Bhatta Dasa Raghunath Sadko Sami Prabhu Ki Nama Charja Srila Haridas Dakur Ki Premsekho Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gora Bhakta Rindaki Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopa Gopinath Shamakun Radha Kund Giri Govardhan Ki Shri Vrindavan Dham Ki 
श्री मथुर राम की श्री मायपुर नाभद्वीत राम की श्री जगन्नाथपुरी राम की श्री श्री राधा कलचंदी राम की गंगा देवी की जमुना माई की तुलसी देवी की भक्ति देवी की समवीर भक्त वृंद की बृहत बदंग ट्रांसेंडल भक्त प्रसारण डिस्ट्रीब्यूशन की नटागोर प्रेमनंद हरि हरि बोल ऑल ग्लोरीज टू द असेंबल्ड बॉडीज ऑल ग्लोरीज टू द असेंबल्ड बॉडीज ऑल ग्लोरीज टू द असेंबल्ड बॉडीज ऑल ग्लोरीज ऑल ग्लोरीज ऑल ग्लोरीज टू श्री गुरु एंड श्री गौरंगा नमो विष्णु पिताये कृष्ण विष्णुये भूतले श्रीमति भक्ति वेदांत स्वामिनी ती नमने नमस्ते सरस्वती देवे गौरवाने पचारिने विशेषशून्यवारी पश्चातरेशतारिने Once again, first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, chapter nine, text number twenty-eight. Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Narayanam namaskritya naram chayivanarottamam devim sadhisvatim yasantato jayam vadirayat nastapreshva badreshu nityam bhagavata sevaya bhagavati uttava shloke bhakti bhavadinaistaki Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam ki jai Text number 28 We'll do word for word pronunciations first uh, Repeat with me please Dharmata, Kama, Moksham, Cha, Sahopayan, Yatha, Mune, Nanakya, Neti, Haseshu. It's a very long word. Varnayam, Asa, Tatvavit. Now it's poetry. Dharmata kama mukshamscha Sahopayan yathamune Nanakyane tihasyesu Varnayam asyatatvavit And please Now, word-for-word translations. Dharma, occupational duties. Artha, economic development. Kama, fulfillment of desires. Mokshan, ultimate salvation. Cha, and 
Saha along with Upayan means Yatha as it is Mune O sage Nana various Akyana by recitation of historical narrations Itihasu in the histories Varnayam Asa described Tatvavit one who knows the truth. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Then he described the occupational duties of different orders and statuses of life, citing instances from history, for he was himself very well acquainted with the truth. And the person we're talking about here, or one who, whose uh, words we're quoting, is Srila Bhishmadev, who is lying on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, his body pierced with many arrows. Hare Krishna. So repeat with me, please. Then he described the occupational duties of different orders and statuses of life. Citing instances from history, for he was himself well acquainted with the truth. And purport by his divine grace. We always depend very heavily on Srila Prabhupada's purports. Incidents mentioned in the Vedic literature such as the Puranas, Mahabharata, and Ramayan are factual historical narrations that took place sometime in the past, although not in any chronological order. Such historical facts, being instructive for ordinary men, were assorted without chronological reference. Besides that, they happen on different planets, nay, in different universes, and thus, the description of the narrations is sometimes measured by three dimensions. We are simply concerned with the instructive lessons of such incidents, even though they are not in order by our limited range of understanding. Bhishmadev described such narrations before Maharaj Yudhisthira in reply to his different questions. Om Jnana Timirandasya Jnanan Jana Salakaya Chakshurun Militam Jaina Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Sri Chaitanya Marobishtam Stapitam Jaina Bhutale Swayam Rupakara Maya Dharati Swavarantikam Vandeham Sri Gurau Sri Dutta Parakamalam Sri Gurun Vaishnavam Chak Sri Rupam Sagajatam Sahagana Raghunatan Vitam Tam Sajivam Savadvaitam Savaduttam Parijana Sahitam Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padan Sahagana Lalita Sri Vishakan Vitam Cha He Krishna Karana Sundo Dinabando Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute 
Taptakam Chanagorangi Radhe Brindamaneshwari Vrishabanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hadi Priye Banchakalpa Tarubhyascha Kripasindu Bhyevacha Patitanam Bhavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namo Namah Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunityananda Sri Advaita Karadhar Sri Vasari Gora Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna, Pristaya Bhutale, Srimate Tamar Krishna, Goswaminiti Namane. We'll recite the translation to the text again. Then he described the occupational duties of different orders and statuses of life, citing instances from history, for he was himself well acquainted with the truth. Srila Bhishmadev. So uh, we're concerned with the reasons that uh, Bhishmadev might have given instructions to the Pandavas, and in particular to Yudhisthira, the eldest of the Pandavas, and the, now the emperor of the entire world since the battle of Kurukshetra is finished. There are reasons for, for his instructions. And we can see in our present society that... Um, and uh, that we generally have either no knowledge or very little knowledge of how to train our children. We're talking about for performing occupational duties and taking their place in, into our society. Uh, parents are quite often unable to prepare for a child's occupational duties because in today's society there is uh, there is generally not the it is generally not the case that children will follow the occupational duty of their father or mother. And so to, to be able to guess uh, what is going to be the child's inclinations by the time he gets out of this long string of years of going to school, uh, it's, it's practically impossible for the parents to be able to know that. So the schools are really providing no guidelines for each student's um, uh, proclivities. In other words, uh, if parents themselves can't determine what is going to be the inclination of the child, whether he's going to be of, of the character and the mood to be able to sit in a classroom all day long, uh, you know, for six, eight hours a day, and uh, and and listen to instructions given by someone who really doesn't know what his own interests are. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of impossible for a school to provide much of a guideline for each student to be able to base their future occupation and their future lives on. Um, there's practically no spiritual training for children in the public and in, even in some private schools. And so um, uh, 
there's nothing really to help them know what to fall back on when things come crashing down around them, as they will do in practically everybody's lives, especially in this age of Kali. Um, there's not much understanding how to situate young persons uh, when they do get out of school, uh, how to situate them, situate them in, in the society. And we generally think that it's, it's, well, it's up to them. They have to decide. We're not going to try to decide for them what they're going to be doing. And the child himself, even though he, that child may be in his late teens, early 20s, most likely in his mid-20s by the time he gets done with a college education, uh, sometimes they have not too much concept of what kind of jobs are out there for them to take. So all the way through, uh, uh, a child is, is kind of much, pretty much on his own to decide what he's going to be doing because it's really difficult for anybody to observe the child and decide what that child's propensities are going to be. And then finally, when one does either get done with his education or he discontinues his education, especially in college, we find that uh, that a lot of children are leaving their homes and their families and traveling to some distant place just to earn a livelihood. Well, we have to decide what has brought us to, or have to come to an understanding. What what has brought the society to this point of kind of leaving children in the lurch, not giving them any really good notion of what they should be doing. We They don't really even know who they are. So what got us to this point? Well, we saw that back in the early 1800s, the society began to become industrialized. Uh, but even by the year 1900, it was said, and I've quoted this before, that 5%... No, 95% of all the working people in the world, practically, made their livings with some farm-related activity, some agriculturally-related activity. 95%, that's in the year 1900. By the year 2000, which is we passed not very long ago, only 21 years ago, uh, the, the numbers had changed. And it was said that only 5% of the population earned their livelihoods with some agriculturally related occupation. 95% earned their livings otherwise in some occupation or some profession that was not related at all. So uh, that happened because of the introduction of industries. And the, the industries had the tendency to lure farm workers to the cities. Now, I, I grew up in, in rural Mississippi in the 1950s and 60s, and I saw in the 1950s that uh, a lot of the people who were in that community that I, my parents moved into uh, were farmers uh, to some extent or another. But there were already in the small town that was about five miles away from our community, there were already a couple of, one or two industries. One was making leather gloves. And that was one of the oldest industrial uh, companies in the little town that I grew up close to. 
And then later on, there were other types of industries. And most recently, uh, there's been a big uh, industry for the uh, harvesting and the milling of, of, of uh, timber. So uh, that, that has changed the landscape a lot. It's also changed a lot of people's lives. Uh, because people have even been going to college so that they could get uh, earn a livelihood in some forestry-related occupation, and this is all in, it, it's all tied in with the industrialization of America. And what was that industrialization really fueled by? Cheap fuel. Because, uh, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, people went from lighting their homes at night using whale oil or some other type of oil and uh, to petroleum, petroleum-based uh, kerosene. And then uh, it was found when the, when the uh, internal combustion engine was discovered that they could use petroleum products in the form of kerosene, diesel, or gasoline to fuel vehicles that would take people from one place to another. And, of course, the first mass mass transit uh, type of vehicle that was around were the trains, the, the, um, the locomotive trains, the ones that started out burning wood to heat water to create steam to turn the wheels. And then later on, uh, diesel became available, diesel fuel became available, and and so they could carry a tanker car behind them and, and carry lots of diesel so that they could go practically all the way across the country without refueling, practically. Or there would be places along the way that were now set up to help to service the trains and also to take care of the people who traveled on them. So uh, cheap energy has really been the uh, provide the impetus for our society to become very much industrialized and for the for the children who have gone to school now then uh, it became quite easy for them to think about getting a job somewhere maybe 2000 3000 miles away from the home they grew up in and some of us have had that same kind of experience uh, right now i'm living in the city of dallas which is about 550 miles from the home that I grew up in. And uh, so that, you know, not only does that have an effect on the lives of the children themselves, but it also has an effect on the lives of the elderly parents, the ones who are aging when the kids leave home. And so uh, eventually the kids have to uh, either uh, put their parents into a facility to take care of them so that they can stay at their distant location and earn a livelihood, or they bring the parents to live with them or to live in an assisted care facility that's somewhere close to where the parents are. So it's really, it's been kind of a disruption to the way lives used to be lived where, uh, uh, in which a, a, a child would grow up and, and start take, he would take up the activity of the other adults who were around him. If he was a male child, then he might take up some farming related activity and, or help his father or his grandfather, you know, run the family farm. And, uh, sometimes those farms consisted of a hundred acres or more. And so it took a lot of, a lot of effort 
to plant and take care of and then harvest the produce and stuff. So that's what we've gotten away from. And it seems like the industries did that by promising a more comfortable lifestyle. You no longer have to get up at 3.30 in the morning and and be out there milking the cows by 5 o'clock and then uh, going and, and connecting up your horses or mules or oxen and to a wagon to go and harvest stuff or to hook them up to a plow. Uh, so, I mean, that was difficult. That was a difficult life. But what people realized later on was that it also allowed a considerable amount of free time because not all of the farmer's time was spent in preparing the soil, planting the crops, and harvesting them. There was a lot of time in there, and then come come winter time, there's practically nothing to do except to take care of the livestock, the animals, repair fences, and that sort of thing, which was not a greatly time-consuming thing. It wasn't like most people get into when they go to work in, in the industrial society, and that is every day of every week of the entire year, they have to drive into a job and do a job five, six days a week, uh, anywhere from six to 12 hours a day. And uh, maybe they will get a nice little two-week vacation to try to try to get a little pleasure out of life before they go back to the old routine again. So uh, it, we, we have come to the point of giving up our dependency on the land for sustenance as a large portion of our society has done. Uh, we have come to the point of depending on the 5% of the population who make their livelihoods harvesting, uh, growing and harvesting crops. And, and, and of course, that requires a, a great deal of farm machinery, a large, very expensive farm machinery to be able to do that, and large expanses of land to make it worthwhile, worth their time to do. So we've kind of given up that dependency on the land, and we've depending, we're depending now on our local grocery stores to truck in all the vegetables and the fruits and the spices that we need. And we, we, you know, children are growing up in our society without any idea how these things are produced. And they don't know anything really about what it, what it takes to drive a truck you know, halfway across the country delivering some product to the, uh, to the cities. Um, so it, it, it takes only about one generation to really lose all the skills that are required for earning one's livelihood entirely from the land. Um, especially uh, we have to depend on government and charities when the time comes that industries have to shut down either because the competition has become too great you know so many industries are sending their uh, their production lines o- across the uh, the ocean to places wherever they can find uh, cheap labor that is very cheap and again uh, it is the cheap fuel that is causing all that to be possible. Um, you know, they used to have sailing ships to take goods back and forth across the ocean, and it might take six weeks to get across the Atlantic Ocean. And now we have huge ships that can carry 
tons and tons of equipment or grains or anything else that has to be required by the city. And therefore, uh, companies then close down here in the United States when they find that they're having to pay labor uh, five, ten times as much as they could get it if they shipped it over to one of the so-called third world or developing countries uh, where people are are being enticed away from their own farming society uh, into the cities which are crowded and dirty and uh, ravaged with with diseases that come through you know these like such as the pandemic that has covered the entire world practically and and so uh that whenever diseases like that come uh, they usually thrive the most in a place where the population is the densest and that means the cities so if people were still living in kind of self-sufficient rural communities they are they might be isolated enough to really get past uh, an uh, an epidemic that comes from time to time uh this one that has just recently ravaged our entire society across the planet as the covid-19 as it's called uh some people you know speculate that that's that's that there's really no such thing that people have just dreamed up the idea to be able to sell a lot of pharmaceuticals. And that might be true to some extent. But other, uh, you know, in other times we've seen that uh, many people will get very sick and will actually give up their bodies if they don't have those pharmaceuticals. So it's it, the society, by having such a concentrated population thing in the city, it makes it very easy for something like that to go on. And also in the cities, people are generally depending on the uh, continuity of the industrial companies that they work for to provide their incomes. And if they if they somehow either lose the job due to things like the pandemic or they lose them because the competition offshores has become so great that they can no longer be competitive in the industry, then uh, then all of those people who were employed for either the epidemics or because of the competition then, they have lost their jobs. And what do they depend on uh, for for maintaining their lives? Uh, if, if it weren't for the government handing out large amounts of money, or charities providing basic some basic uh, uh, needs for the people, uh, the people would just die where they are. So we're interested in turning the society around. This isn't all uh, going to be a negative talk today, uh, but we're talking about now looking at what is being recommended by Grandfather Bishmadev. Um, at this time, just before he gives up his body. And he's telling the emperor of the world that people have to be engaged in their occupational duties. But at the same time, um, that we need to change the societies today so that we can have more self-sufficient rural communities if we want to, if we want to last as a society. Um, It isn't enough just to have the government to rely on uh, to sustain us. Um, 
and um, the situation that we've gotten ourselves into where uh, the rural communities are being e- evacuated um, because the kids are finding work that they can do in some distant city. Um, and I mentioned that I, I, I was brought up in the 1950s in a kind of a farming society. But even during the 1950s, uh, I could see that the people who provided most of the labor uh, force around my area uh, were uh, African-American young men and women. And um, the, when, when they started their mass exodus to the northern or northeastern cities, northwestern in some case cities, uh, that left all the farmers who were now in, in their latter years uh, without any uh, anybody to help do the farming. So the, they simply stopped farming and retired, retired from farming. And, and, in, and therefore, uh, a lot of these small rural communities then practically came, became vacant. And what used to be a thriving town with, uh, with all kinds of small communities around it, supplying goods into the town and services, uh, they begin to become less and less in their population as well. So uh, it, if, we, if we turn the society around and reestablish our self-sufficient rural communities, then we create a natural division of labor. Uh, because in a farming society, different people have different uh, aspects, even in a, even in a household. Uh, we have seen by visiting a Mennonite community up in Middle Tennessee uh, that the the young the young kids, generally boys and girls, go to school until they get to be in the eighth grade, and by that time they've learned to learn how to read, uh, how to write, and how to do some rather simple mathematics. And perhaps they had some, uh, I don't know whether they even had courses in like American history or world history. Uh, but they, they also, uh, one of their prime books for reading and understanding and studying was the, the, uh, Christian Bible, Judeo-Christian Bible. And, and so when they got to be about in the, in the eighth grade, which I guess means maybe, uh, 14, 15, 16, something like that, uh, then they would begin, the young men would be going out and helping their folks in the fields to take care of the crops and take care of the animals. And the young women would then take over, uh, household responsibilities with their mothers. So there was a natural division of labor there. And um, I just wanted to refer to the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 3 of the Bhagavad Gita, text number 8. Uh, there, is, there is the shloka, Niyatam kuru karma tam, karma jayo yakarmana, sharira yatrapi chate na prasidyed Akarmana. And that is translated, perform your prescribed duty. This is Krishna talking to Arjuna. Perform your prescribed duty for, uh, your prescribed duty for doing so is better than not working. One cannot even maintain one's physical body without work. 
And Prabhupada has a, a kind of short, interesting purport here. There are many pseudo-meditators who represent themselves to be uh, to uh, as belonging to the high per- high parentage and great professional men who falsely pose that they have sacrificed everything for the advancement of spiritual life. Lord Krishna did not want Arjuna to become a pretender. Rather, the Lord desired that Arjuna performed his prescribed duties as set forth for Chatriyas. Arjuna was a householder and a military general, and therefore it was better for him to remain as such and perform his religious duties as prescribed for uh, for the uh, household Chatriya. Such activities gradually cleanse the heart of a mundane man and free him from material contamination. And so uh, Prabhupada goes on to say, work should not be given up capriciously without purification of materialistic propensities. Anyone who is in the material world is certainly possessed of the impure propensity for lording it over material nature, or in other words, for sense gratification. Such polluted propensities have to be cleared. Without this, uh, without doing so, uh, though prescribed duty through prescribed duties, one should never attempt to become a so-called transcendentalist, renouncing work and living at the cost of others. So he's insisting here that one should perform your prescribed duties. That's what he's telling Arjuna. Well, and as we mentioned earlier, in our society, young people generally don't know what their prescribed duties are. They They don't even know really who they are. Uh, as spirit souls. So they just follow the example of all the adults in their area, like the community that I grew up in. Children generally just, you know, they take whatever the adults tell them as being the truth. So we have to try to, if we're going to turn society around, we need to give each child a general education, but always with some spiritual basis. Uh, and we, we need to start, uh, if we're going to return to any kind of sane life, we need to apprentice young men and women for their occupational duties. So we find that in the agricultural societies that young men will indeed take up the activities of their superiors, their, the, uh, the elders in the community. And uh, eventually, because... People, when they get to a certain age, they have to pretty much give up and let the young people do the work. So as long as they're not, the children are not leaving home to go off to some distant place just to earn a livelihood, they will always be around to help take care of the older people who took care of them when they were young. So we, we have to prepare then young persons for such future engagement. And one thing we, we can begin with is knowledge of the reason, of one's reason for this birth that he has taken. What is the reason for even being in this material, in this material world? And we know that we, we have come here initially, we've left the spiritual world and come here just because we were uh, enticed by the, the fact that there was a material world and sometimes People had some curiosity. What 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 is that bright light over there in the distant horizon? I think I'll go check it out. 
And so uh, Krishna permits them to come into this material world if they get tired of living in the spiritual world, which is free of anxiety, but which also has a supreme being there. And it, it is required for a person to know that supreme being and to worship him. But sometimes people become a little envious. Like, like one person said, why is it that Krishna gets all the beautiful girls? <laughs> why am I not getting my share? And so when they have that kind of, uh, that kind of attitude, thinking that, uh, this person should belong to me, then, uh, then the spiritual world is not the place for you to be. So Krishna has has very intelligently designed this material world for us to come into to try to seek happiness without having to compete with him, so we think. And he's made all kinds of arrangements so that we can have a very decent life in this material world, even though it might be short in this age of Kali. At one point in time, of course, we know that the lifespans were a hundred thousand years for each ent- entity. That was the average lifespan. And so that's, that's a very long time to stay in the material world. But, uh, for those who chose to not go back to the spiritual world, they've been able to come back as we have come back into this world at this time and to try to find our happiness. Once again, we, we're given a body to Help us to try to find happiness once again in this material world. So it is necessary then for us to give that knowledge of the reason for one taking birth to our children. Um, the, instead of instead of training children and preparing them for a lifestyle out there in the industrial society, which may take you know twenty twenty years of schooling to even get to the point of having a job. Instead of doing that, we need to educate children for a simple lifestyle in, in if we're going to have self-sufficient rural communities again. Now, I haven't really said too much about the reason, you know, a really good, sound reason for changing our lifestyle and going back into the agricultural type of society. And uh, Shalagram Prabhu, is he's done a lot of studying about the cities and the reasons for taking up a, a, a self-sufficient lifestyle in, in an agrarian society, a farming society. Uh, probably the most convincing of those ideas for changing our society to a rural society again is that there are certain commodities or utilities that are present in the city. Uh, there are about five that we consider generally to be essential. One is water. One is, is uh, foodstuffs. Foodstuffs. Being able to, being, having food. In other words, these are, are absolute necessities for the city. Having, having a source of water. Uh, having a source of foodstuffs that we can d- rely on. And generally that does not come from the city, but it comes to the city from the outside. Uh, another is, is, um, uh, some type of energy. We have to have a source of energy. And right now in our area here in Dallas, we have electricity and we also have natural gas. 
to provide our energy. And then, of course, we have uh, petroleum that is shipped in from other areas into our area. So we can't imagine how life would go on without those utilities. Uh, another, two more services that are required. One is waste disposal. You know, we're so used to having flush toilets in our houses and, you know, growing up as kids, we might never know where all that waste goes. But, but as adults, we realize that there's a huge system of pipes throughout the city, underground pipes that take away the waste of the entire city to one or two main locations where the, the waste is separated from the water and, and then, uh, then, the, then that waste has to be disposed of. And the water is cleaned up somewhat and it's, uh, and then they inject, uh, chlorine into it sometimes, uh, before it can be used again in, in another household or in another industry. So, uh, that's, uh, those are the kinds of, of, of utilities and, 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 uh, facilities that we have to have to live in a city. And the last one I wanted to mention was garbage disposal. Uh, and I've seen times when the garbage workers go on strike in a big city and you see pictures of garbage, garbage just heaped up on the sides of the streets, just piled high, higher than your head. Uh, from maybe one, two, three weeks of not being picked up. So those, those kinds of things that the city requires, waste disposal, garbage disposal, um, energy for transportation, for heating the homes, for cooling the homes, uh, and, and, uh, food being sent into the city from somewhere outside. All of those utilities, if there's even one of those missing, Life becomes impractical or untenable in the city. If you lose water, what are you going to do? The closest reservoir of water we have is White Rock Lake, which is about three miles from here. I believe it's about three miles, three and a half miles maybe, if you walked on the Santa Fe Trail up here to get out to the lake. So can you imagine having having to go that far just to bring back water to, you know, take care of cleansing not only your body, but also your household, your clothes, having water to drink. Can you imagine doing that? So if, if, if we lost water, if we lost natural gas, or if we lost electricity, or if we lost uh, sanitation systems that take away our body wastes, and if we lost uh, uh, garbage disposals, you know, trucks coming by picking up. Any one of those five would make the city a very, very difficult place to live in. And, of course, water is probably one of the most important things of all, other than air. And, of course, clean air is sometimes at a premium in some cities. So uh, if we don't have those, then, then we have to consider what are the alternatives Right now, what are most people doing who go out and make a living each day? They're simply taking care, they're maintaining their households, and they feel very fortunate to have jobs that they can do that and have a means of transportation to get to that job and back. Uh, they feel very fortunate in having that. And, and that's really all that they have in mind is preparing, you know, maintaining their households 
and raising their children and sending them to school so that they can go to work after they get out of school and get a nice paying job in some industrial organization so that they can continue that same kind of lifestyle. But we have found out this past winter with this, uh, with a big loss of power throughout the entire state of Texas, we lost electrical powers. There were a few places that still had some electricity. But here, even here in the city of Dallas, we're very close to being to downtown Dallas. And our, you know, our electricity was just on and off, on and off for several days. Well, what if we'd been living out in the country? And it had taken them three weeks to get the electricity back on. What, what if we, uh, in the city, what, during the winter, we practically lost the use of natural gas because natural gas requires electricity generally to bring it on if you have uh, central heat and air. And most people in the city, I would say, have central heating even if they don't have central air. Uh, so uh, the cities can easily and quickly become a very hellish place to be. And yet we're living our lives now, raising our children doing our work just as though everything is going to be hunky-dory. And there's not going to be a time when we're going to lose one of those major utilities. Or if we do, then the electric company is going to have the power back on within a matter of a few hours. And so, therefore, we're going to have to worry about losing our refrigeration or in the summertime losing our air conditioning for very long. But there's a possibility, as we saw this past winter, February, that that the power could go off across in most of the entire state, and people would be without electrical power. And without electrical power, sometimes it's very difficult to even utilize the gas if you have it available. Uh, fortunately for us, we, in my household, we had a gas cooking stove. And fortunately for us, in my house, we have a wood-burning heater in one of our rooms. And so I had, I had a stock of wood set aside, uh, for, for just in case, you know, not never knowing how cold it's going to get and knowing also that wood is just like supplemental that we can use our natural gas for most things. But I have a, 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 a heating and cooling system in my house that depend on electricity to turn the thing on. I can't even turn on the gas that heats the house unless I've got electricity. So, without a gas cook stove that we could light using a match, and without having a wood heater that would burn wood that I had collected, we would have been in serious trouble. And many people were. And, and some people died because of the cold during this really, really harsh winter. Now, we're thinking, well, that doesn't happen that often. I mean, we've, I mean I've been here in, in Dallas since 1980. That's about 40-some-odd years. And uh, I've never known a time that we had such extreme cold and we actually lost electrical power for a, a considerable period of time or it was on and off. The house would get down to, sometimes it'd get down to 40 degrees or even below if we had not had the gas stove and the wood heater. So what are we preparing our kids for? We're preparing them to perpetuate the same kind of situation that we ourselves live in. And we have just missed an opportunity to buy a piece of land out in the country that was next to Radhanath Prabhu's farm, uh, which would have allowed us the, the facility for building 
maybe small, simple houses that if we had to, we could escape to, and there's lots of wood around there to burn. You know, all you got to do is cut it down, split it, and, and stack it up. And and there's also, uh, there are some lakes around there, right close to Radhanath Prabhu's place. There is a, a place called Abel Springs. It's a it's a big gravel pit that uh, filled up with with clear spring water, and that could be you know so that's not too far down the road, maybe a quarter mile down the road from Rattanat's farm. But what about us here in in Dallas? What are we going to do for potable water? I've water to drink. I'm talking about, and and to wash clothes and to wash our bodies. Uh, if if we lost that, what would we do? We'd have to head out to the country. You know, and hoping somebody could could put us up, and hoping that somebody had done their gardens and had produce canned and put away for the winter time, because if we lost that here in the city, how many people have a month's supply of food in the city? Not too many. So it 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 appears to be dire, and and some some people are probably saying, "Well, Rupanuga, you're just you're just." acting as though a cataclysmic event is going to occur. And will it? Will it come or will it not come? Some people ask me, Rupanuga, why do you why do you carry a, a sidearm? Why do you carry a, a pistol with you most of the time? And I said, well, can you tell me when somebody is going to come into this temple room with, with an AR-15 rifle and start shooting things up and shooting people up? If you can tell me, then I will, I will only carry my gun on that day. But otherwise, what do I have to stop such a person from coming in? So there are possible disasters that can occur in a city. And some of them also can spill over into the country. We have crazy people out in the country as well who, who are willing to take your life. So the, the question is, are we going to continue living the lifestyles that we've been living I mentioned that piece of land out close to Radhanath Prabhu's place. Um, it, it was it was decided uh, by the only one or two people who were really interested in making an attempt to purchase that land. It was decided not to. So uh, we really don't have that kind of uh, a rural environment to escape to if things go really bad. Uh, so one more verse from the uh, from the Sri Bhagavad Gita. Jagya tart kamano yantra loko yam kamabandana tat artam karma kuntia mukta sangha samachara. Work done as a sacrifice for Krishna or for Vishnu has to be performed. Otherwise work uh, causes bondage in this material world. Therefore, Sandha Kunti, perform your prescribed duties for his satisfaction. And in that way you will always remain free from bondage. So, Sri Vishnu, uh, uh, Bhishmadev is giving instructions to Yudhisthira about how to run his kingdom, talking about occupational duties of people. And you can be certain that, uh, that Yudhisthira, King Yudhisthira, was aware that for things to go on orderly in the society, uh, there had to be people who had their occupational duties to perform, and it was not an industrial society at that time. So it was mostly agricultural or business or administrative. You know, you had your choice. So it is, it's important to us that we read then the Srimad Bhagavatam, because we find instances of people's lives, 
that that are, that are being affected whenever a, a major disaster occurs or whenever a, a, a really bad ruler comes in and takes over who is interested really in uh, keeping his party in power or keeping his group of cronies together in power. And so uh, we can learn, we can learn from reading the Srimad Bhagavatam what both what we need to prepare for and the reasons that we need to have spiritual training involved in, the, in our youngsters' lives in order that they will know how to properly take over when, when we have to give our prayer posts. Hare Krishna. Any comments? Do we have a microphone? Is that no? Let, let's get a microphone because people who are listening in online really want to hear what you have to say, not just what what my interpretation is. <laughs> in our Krishna conscious society, you know, our our founder Acharya Shil Prabhupada wanted us to have. Uh, communities, rural communities, that people could escape to when the industrial society that we find ourselves living in comes tumbling down. And it will happen. It will happen. We've seen it happen in the past, and we know that cities are not self-sustaining. They require all kinds of things coming in from outside to sustain them. And, uh, and of course, we said that that's really dependent on cheap energy right now. And, and of course, we know that energy as it's formed, as it's currently being provided is mostly non-sustainable. Anything that is mined from the earth in the way of like coal or extracted in the way of petroleum, uh, it, uh, it's not sustainable. And eventually we have to find some alternative for it. Yes, yes, Prabhu. Um. Yeah, Prabhu, you mentioned about the rural communities that, uh, you know, we should uh, definitely think about uh, as, an, as an alternative to if, when, if and when this uh, city-based lifestyle collapses. So the Amish and Mennonites, they are already doing it for decades and decades. So is there any learning lessons for us from them? So we can look up, you know, how they are doing it for decades and decades and then maybe we can emulate and uh, some of that and then maybe improvise in our way. That, that's a good point. Yeah, they're practically, the Amish and the Mennonites, as you mentioned, are probably the only people in this country who are living a, a lifestyle that is similar to the uh, uh, self-sustaining type of community that we've been talking about and, uh, of course, we, you know, from the experience that I had, I, I went and visited with the uh, Mennonite communities. Mennonites and Amish are similar, I think. Uh, this was in uh, Tennessee. It was about maybe two or three hours away from Knoxville, Tennessee, where my wife and I were living at that time. And uh, we saw that um, uh, even though they don't believe in the use of equipment for farming, they have chainsaws. And whenever uh, there, there was some little bit of, of a schism taking place in the community that we visited, uh, that one of the one of the members told us about, they said that some of the young boys in the in some of the families wanted to get 
harvesting machines to harvest the soybeans instead of doing them as they had been doing for centuries. Because, you know, they could bring in that machine and pay the operator and owner of the machine a certain amount of money, and they could save themselves, you know, hours and hours, maybe days of labor. So just depending on how big the farm was, you know, what what size farm... Generally, in a in a small where a family is is doing the farming, it's just the family members who really are taking the responsibility. Occasionally, uh, there a whole group of men will come together for doing things like raising a barn for for an individual. If a man needs a barn uh, to you know house his his animals and and the hay for them and and different things like that. Uh, uh, maybe a whole community will come together and spend a day or so, and they'll put up a whole barn in a, in a day's time. Uh, but uh, but if you don't have a community like that, then it's really hard to think about moving your family out into a rural area. You know, you, maybe you've got one or two kids that are still young, and and uh, and and then trying to imitate that kind of a lifestyle, a self-sufficient lifestyle. Uh, because, number one, you probably don't have the skills for it. Number two, you have to you have to purchase the land, which is, you know, out in the area where Radhanath Prabhu has his farm. We hear prices anywhere from seven to fifteen thousand dollars an acre for farmland, and and that sounds pretty cheap in the city because you can have a lot, one lot, a fifty by one hundred fifty foot lot. That can cost you twenty to thirty thousand dollars here in the city, but out in the country, um, you, we, you know, there's not that many opportunities for making the kind of money that people who live in the city have to re- have to have. They have to make that kind of money in the city to be able to afford to live in the city. So, uh, so then you you got those obstacles then to overcome. The farmer has to have the skills. He has to have a, a supporting community to be able to live practically. Otherwise, he's got to have really good vehicles to run back and forth into the city, uh, even to get to see a doctor maybe for his for his children. Uh, so it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy proposition to think about um, changing from an urban society to a rural society. But we see uh, from recent events, like, for instance, the storm Ida, the Hurricane Ida that just blew into southern Louisiana, it is it is completely uh, made uninhabitable the the community known as Grand Isle, which I think was an island on which a lot of people had had built houses and lived. Uh, it's completely uninhabitable. Uh, they have, you know, the houses have been destroyed. They have no a sewage system that probably is working. That I'm sure that their water system has been contaminated. Um, uh, no electricity until the electrical company gets lines back out there so that they can have electricity. So, and and in a place like New Orleans, and when we had that great big hurricane several years ago, Camila, uh, Camila. Katrina, yeah, Katrina, uh, that occurred, you know, about what, 10 years ago now, maybe? 2005. Oh, it's been longer than I'm thinking then. 16 years ago. 2005. 
Yeah, that made uh, that made the big areas of the entire city of New Orleans, like the one they call the Ninth Ward, uh, completely uninhabitable. And people died as a result of that. This was in the summertime when it was very hot and, and people were sometimes found dead in their attics, you know, trying to get away from the floodwaters. And they just, it was so hot up there that they died. Some people broke through the, the ceiling, through the roof of their attics so they could climb out on their roofs and wait for someone to come rescue them. So this this kind of thing can happen uh, to to cities and in places where people feel very secure, more secure than they thought that they would feel living out in the country. But yes, uh, back to your point too, Prabhu, the uh, Mennonites and the Amish—they're probably the the closest examples that we have that we can get to to see how they're performing that kind of thing. Um, they some sometimes they have to have vehicles to go somewhere, so they will catch a bus, or or maybe if they have to haul something from one place to another, they'll contact one of their neighbors that's not Mennonite or Amish, and they will pay them to carry whatever it is they need to carry from one place to another. Uh, so even their lifestyle is not purely uh, self-sufficient. Uh, but they're closer to it than we are. <laughs> they're closer to being self-sufficient than we are. But, but you know, you find that people living in the cities don't want to give up their lifestyles. I like being able to go in there and turn my thermostat down two or three degrees and, and hear my compressor outside come on and and then the house becomes cool in the summertime. I mean, that's really nice. Uh, I like the idea of my wife being able to go to the grocery store and buy any variety of vegetables and fruits and grains uh, that she can prepare our meals in, in, the, in the house. Uh, you were mentioning the, one of the five necessities like electricity, water, and others. So at least with the advances in the solar energy panels, at least when we are in the rural area, uh, then at least we can have solar energy and electricity in the home. At least that part is uh, not as difficult as it used to be before. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, if, if you lose your industrial base, then uh, who's going to repair your uh, solar panels? Uh, if you don't, if if you can't, and and if you're out there and you can't afford to pay the price of of solar panels and the and the other equipment that is required for making it available for household use, that's that's, ex- that's expensive right now. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, most most people who lived in the country, you know, and many people did live in the country, they had to have access to a creek. A flowing creek or, or a lake or, uh, to, for their drinking water almost always if, from a spring that came right out of the ground. In the community that I grew up in, there were artesian wells in places. And those were wells that, uh, that the water actually came up to the top of the ground under its own power, uh, through gravity, of course. It probably came, flowed down from a, a hill 
somewhere close by, underground, and then where the people had the well. And you could drive through the country in various places. You could see a big pipe coming up out of the ground, you know, maybe a four-inch pipe. Uh, in the, even in the town that I used to live close to, which had about 5,000 people and still has probably about 5,000 people, uh, on the what we call Front Street, the main street in town, there were a couple of artesian wells right out there, right outside the, beside the sidewalk that anybody could come up and drink from. It was just bubbling up out of the ground. Uh, in recent times, those have been had been capped off or taken away or something because now there's the uh, they have a city water system and everybody gets their water through the through the city from the city. Uh, there's one little community that's maybe 15 miles away that used to be a pretty booming little town, but now it, it doesn't have many people. I mean, it's just maybe a few hundred, two or three hundred people living around there. But in the, uh, there is still, they've made a kind of a little house over, uh, their artesian well that has been there for a hundred, maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty years. And that water is still bubbling up out of the earth and is still, uh, really tasty to drink. So yeah, water is, is probably one of the most, uh, immediate necessities that we have in the city or in the country. And and if you don't have it coming through the pipes in the city, you're in trouble. Then you go to the store and try to buy bottled water. Anything else? Thank you very much for that. All right, we will stop here and uh, hope that uh, we've given you, uh, you who are listening in, you who are listening into the uh, recorded version of this class. We've given you maybe some impetus to think about what is required to get ourselves a community out in the country that we could move to within a few, you know, a few days notice if things in the city became unbearable that we can no longer tolerate. So with that, we'll end. Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam ki jai, Srila Prabhupada ki jai, Shishi Radha Kalachanji Dham ki jai. And we offer our respectful obeisances to all the Vaishnava devotees of the Lord who are just like desire trees, who fulfill the desires of everyone, and who are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Vanchakalpatarubhyascha kripasindabhyevacha patitanam bhavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo namo namaha anantakoti Vaishnavinda ki jai. Hare Krishna everyone.